Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning for Every Day is Earth Day today. We are talking with an author of How to Prepare for Climate Change. It's David Pogue. It's the first practical guide to adapting to the new climate. It covers where to live, how to invest, how to insure, how to talk to your kids, how to build, what to grow, how to prepare a business, and how to prepare for flood, fire, fire, drought, hurricane, heat waves, and tornadoes. Huh, all those things, um, you know, it's something we probably don't want to think about, but apparently, David, you think that's something we all need to prepare for. I do. There are... Uh there are two ways of tackling climate change. What most people have heard of is called mitigation. That means trying to stop climate change, you know, fly less and eat less red meat and carpool and all that kind of thing. And almost everything you read and hear is about mitigation, but there's an equally respected approach, which is try to cope with what's already here. And so that's called adaptation, and that's, that's the thrust of my book. I mean, businesses and governments do adaptation all the time. They, they build flood walls or they develop new seeds that do better in drought and things like that. But my theory is it's time for individuals and families to be able to do some adaptation. Now, David, you are a New York Times bestselling self-help author and a CBS Sunday Morning Science and Technology correspondent. So how did you get this interest in climate change enough to actually write a book about it? Well, I've always been mostly an explainer. That's sort of the one Mm -hmm. through line of my career, whether it was, you know, I wrote for 13 years a technology column for the Times. I wrote a bunch of the blah, blah, blah for dummies books. Oh, did you? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yep. So that's always sort of been my, my specialty. And, you know, I started this book at a time when, you know, the, the federal government had erased the words climate change from the website, we pulled out of the Paris Accord. I was worried. I mean, I, I had eco-despair, like a lot of people did and do. So I, I thought this would be the perfect way to combine two things. I would be, be able to do the research to calm myself, because when you prepare, feel prepared for something bad, you sleep better at night that you've taken steps. And I would be able to explain my findings to the public. That's interesting because a lot of the programming that I do interviews with on this show in particular talk about ways we can prevent the climate change, you know, adapt to electrical vehicles, alternative energy, renewable energy, that kind of thing. But you're talking about exactly it's going to happen, but let's see what we can do to adapt to it. So you're saying maybe a little of each is necessary. Yeah, for a long time, there were some contentious battles about you know, mitigation versus adaptation. In other words, people would say, don't talk about adaptation because that's like saying I give up, ah. like it's hopeless. Like, like, and I think today most scientists and experts realize we need to do both things. I mean, we are not going back to the weather of the 80s in our lifetimes. That's done. That's, that change is for good. So we do need to start accepting the fact that these changes, these wildfires, these freak droughts, these incredible heat waves, these record-breaking weather events that we're getting every single year 
are the new normal. So hard as it may be, the time is now to start thinking about how you're going to prepare yourself to ready yourself to be more resilient for you, your family, and your house. Now, you mentioned you started thinking more about this when the COVID lockdown was going on. And So what impact did COVID have on the whole issue of climate change? Wow, that was wild. We had basically a controlled experiment involving the entire planet. In other words, every, everybody stopped driving. Everybody stopped going to work every day. The factories shut down. All the polluting parts of our infrastructure shut down. So we could experiment to see what happens with carbon emissions. And it dropped suddenly and hugely. It dropped 17%, the greatest drop ever recorded. Um, now, of course, it's, it's back up again now that most things have started back up. But it was such a fascinating experiment, you know, to see what would happen, how much effect could we have on this blanket of greenhouse gases. So that simply, you said, if that can happen, what else can we do? And it's back again, so what can we do now? Yeah, I mean, the main thing it really did was to show the cause and effect of human behavior. A lot of people ask me, you know, what about climate, climate change deniers? And I always say, I really don't think there are any left in, in terms of people who say nothing has changed. I mean, you, no one in their right mind can look out the window or read the headlines and say, oh, yeah, this is the same weather we've always had. Obviously, something has changed. What we do have is 29% of the population still believes that this crazy weather we're getting is part of natural cycles. Yeah. It has nothing to do with carbon dioxide and human activity. And the, the COVID pandemic sort of proved that point, because when we stopped polluting, the greenhouse gases dropped. In your book, you have chapters on how to deal with specific things. And I was looking down to see which ones, because we're in the Midwest here. And I thought, well, yep, we got floods, we've got heat waves, we've got drought, we've got tornadoes, we've got mosquitoes and ticks for sure. And we don't have the hurricanes. That's one thing we are devoid of. And we do have some fires, but nothing like they do out in California. So pretty much even in the Midwest, we're going to be affected. But you talked about one of the chapters, in fact, the first one is where to live. I mean, is the Midwest someplace you should live because we don't have the hurricanes or or is no place safe? Yeah, no, it turns out that, uh, I mean, the, the Great Lakes region in particular is the sweet spot. And oh, study really? after study and expert after expert have shown this. In other words, if, if you have the luxury of being able to choose where to live, not everybody does, but 40 million Americans do move every year for one reason or another, you want to be east far enough to avoid the droughts and the wildfires that they have out west. You want to be west far enough to avoid the hurricanes and the sea level rise. And you want to be north far enough to avoid the extreme heat and, of course, the Gulf hurricanes. Um, and where that leaves you is the Great Lakes area. And that's especially important because the Great Lakes have water. Uh, the yes. droughts are, you know, they're not very telegenic. They don't get a lot of play on the evening news because you can't put 30 seconds of a dried out field on TV. <laughs> um, but drought is one of the biggest problems. We are all three of our sources of water, which are snowmelt, aquifers, and dams. All three of those sources in the United States are at record lows and getting lower. So the beauty of the Great Lakes area is there will always be fresh, clean, drinkable water and no sea level rise. So are you saying Minnesota might be one of those safe spots, Wisconsin, Michigan, all our area up here? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I, in fact, um, in the book, I took out 15 sample cities that are not only climate havens, but also they happen to have good quality of life, nice people, low cost of living, and absolutely, Minnesota and Wisconsin. In fact, Madison comes up again and again as hmm. like one of the number one places to live in the country, number one best places for couples, for families, for tech workers, for outdoor recreation, and so on. They, you know, they've got five lakes and so on. And, and people are saying that the Rust Belt is, po- is poised for a giant resurgence in the next 80 years because people are going to have to move north, east, and west into a more livable area. So, and of course, the cost of living is low. And I know, I know Minnesota, like, oh, it's cold there in the winter. Yeah, but not as cold as it used to be. <laughs> oh, you're I right. Mean, you know, I'm a gardener, so I, I'm very aware of the weather. Our, in fact, we've changed zones. We're now at a 4B, almost a 5 in our area. Wow. And that and We're southern Minnesota, so it's definitely been changing. And the severe weather, the rains, very heavy rains. We used to get, you know, you want an inch a week is ideal. You know, sometimes you get 7 inches or 12 inches. And we're in a drought now for the second year so we're very short of water i think we're like 14 inches short for this summer so we have issues of that as well here so when i'm thinking of all these people moving here it kind of scares me because i'm thinking well the water here could run out as well so how do you deal with that it's um it's funny because i just saw a report it was a um a joint venture of the governors of of the midwestern states and it was literally called preparing for the great climate migration to mm. our states. I mean, they really are starting to have to think about housing and transportation and medical care. Where are all these people going to live? But I, I mean, rest assured, it's going to be a very slow, very long process, decades. It's not like everyone's going to arrive in Minnesota <laughs> tomorrow. Good. <laughs> That's good to know. But, you know, then you also say, you know, how to build. And you know, we're going to be building differently as well because dealing with the intense heat waves or uh, all the different weather we're having. So that's another part you address in the, your climate change book. That's right. We have kind of forgotten some of the things that we used to do to make our homes and buildings resilient. So, for example, in San Francisco, I'm, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. I'm on a trip. They don't have air conditioning here. What? They've never needed air conditioning. Oh, I didn't know that. It's cool in San Francisco year-round, or has been until the last five years. And now they're getting these crazy heat waves, and they're just absolutely not prepared. I mean, everyone's all these apartment buildings have these, you know, these they look like radiators on wheels, and you you stick them out your window, and that's what they're using as air conditioning. But we used to know how to build for heat. Think about those old southern plantation houses. First of all, they had these big overhanging porches to provide shade. Secondly, they had really high ceilings because, guess what, heat rises. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in your living room, the heat will go up above your head. You won't feel it. And they typically had a a through corridor, one hallway, that went from the front door to the back door, and you could open the doors on both ends, and the breeze would blow right through the house. And we've, you know, in the age of air conditioning, we've forgotten how to build like that. Um, but some techniques like that could really help us as we build new houses. And, of course, you know, flooding, is, it's well known. You're not going to be able to build a new house and sometimes even sell an, a house in a flood zone anymore without elevating it, which is a huge, expensive process. 
but all new houses in flood zones are being elevated to get above the flood level, and all the houses being built in wildfire area, they've got to start thinking about what's my roof made of? How far am I from the forest? Because embers have been known to fly as far as a mile from the actual wildfire, and if they land in your dry pine needles, your house is gone. And you speak of dry pine needles, that's another thing, is because it is so dry, a lot of our flora and fauna are drying up and dying. You know, you look even in the, the Colorados and they get some diseases and things and the needle drop and, the, and that's just ripe for, for these fires. And so this whole thing is going to be changing. I think that the, the plant and plants and those things are going to be changing as well. And you also have a spot in the book that you talk about what to grow as well. So I think uh, that's going to be part of the whole changing what you have around your home. I, I should have consulted with you. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the gardening chapter. Yeah. But I'm, I'm thrilled I'm thrilled that you mentioned the zones. You're, you're talking about on the back of every packet of seeds, how the, mm-hmm. the USDA puts the growing zones of the countries to, to where it shows you where these seeds will thrive. Yes. And as, exactly as you say, they have had to keep revising those maps as the country heats up from south to north. So the zones are moving northward. It's wild. It is. The amounts of rain and the regularity of the rains is really affected. A lot more xeriscaping is happening here in the Midwest than ever used to. It used to be something we never thought about, but it is something that's a part of our what we do now. Yeah, and, and you also mentioned about the interconnected systems, you know, Drought leads to pine needles, leads to tinder for wildfires. And if there's one conceptual understanding of climate change that I hope this book and this interview uh, conveys, it's that climate change is not a great term. Global warming is not a great term. People think that global warming means, you know, the weather's gradually getting warmer and therefore milder winters. Who's going to mind? What you have to understand is all of this stuff is interconnected. It's, it's dominoes. You know, one system affects another and another. For example, we, it's, it's not just we get heavier rains and we get droughts. We get those two in cycle. Mm-hmm. And the reason we're getting so much more flooding, even inland, is first we'll have a drought, the ground gets hard and dry, and then we get these crazy torrential rains, the water has nowhere to go, the ground is hard and dry and it rolls down into your basements and your businesses. So all of these things are connected, sometimes in bizarre ways. We're, we're getting smaller goats, lower SAT scores, smaller beaches, more volcanoes. It, there's some really weird secondary and tertiary effects that are, that are coming from all this. So don't be that congressman who walks into Congress carrying a snowball and say, saying, you can't tell me the, the planet is warming. <laughs> that's, that's a very short-sighted view of the world. Although when, when in Minnesota, when we've got something like the 40, 50 below or more with the wind chill, sometimes we say, see, it's not really getting warmer, is it? It's just those days, though, <laughs> specific days, believe me. Uh, so an, another thing you address in here is how, how you should invest, and even that's going to change. And, of course, that might get some people's ears because that's their pocketbooks. That's right. And, and I actually had a long conversation with my editor about that chapter. In other words, is it a little bit crass and heartless to write a chapter about how you can profit from the world ending? And, <laughs> you know, most of this book is based on interviews with experts. I'm, I'm not an expert in gardening or building. These are all expert advice. And 
the experts all said, no, you should include this chapter for the simple reason that investing in companies that do things to make the world cleaner and better is also helping the world at the same time. So you're, you're actually making the world better for everybody. And it's wild because most people think, oh, well, electric cars, that's, a, that's where to invest, or solar panels, that's got to be it. But it's actually trickier than that. You know, solar panels are unbelievably successful in this country. We are decades ahead of where we thought we'd be. Do you know that last year, 72% of all new electrical capacity in the country is solar and wind? Wow. 72%. And coal, by the way, zero. Coal is gone, going away in the United States. There are no new coal plants planned for to be built, and many of the ones that exist are being converted or shut down. So coal is going away. It's, it's rough for coal miners, I understand, yeah. but there are already five times more jobs in the solar industry than there are in the coal mining industry. So retraining is necessary, empathy is necessary, but the world has moved on from coal. Anyway, but the point is, the point is, solar panels are not a great investment, and because the reason they're so successful is because they're so cheap now. Mm. Solar energy is so cheap. It's unbelievable. It's like 20 cents a kilowatt. It, and, and it's because the Chinese factories are pumping out solar panels as a commodity. They're, it's sort of a race to the bottom. Who can make them cheapest? And that's why it would not be a good investment. What would be a good investment, though, are the electric utility companies that are switching to solar and wind. And the reason they're doing that is because half of the American states already have laws on the books that dictate that they must switch to solar and wind and clean energy by 2030, 2035, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So the companies that will benefit are those utility companies that are preparing for that giant switchover. And same thing with, with electric cars. Yeah, you could invest in individual car companies, but why not think upstream? Only four companies in the world make electric car batteries, and they're all Asian companies, except for Tesla starting to make their own batteries as well. But even Teslas are made by Panasonic for Tesla. So anyway, these four Asian companies, uh, Samsung, LG Chemical, um, Panasonic, and so on, they make the batteries that all the car companies have to use. So you can think upstream like that. So that's the investment part. Insurance part, I'm thinking what's going to happen is more and more insurance companies aren't going to want to insure a lot of things, especially for the people that continue to want to live on the coast and things like that. Yeah, you're not kidding. There's a chapter at the end of the book called Where to Find Hope, and it's basically a list of all the progress that has been made, the progress that is been making, all the attention that's been paid to reducing our emissions and fixing the world. And there is a lot of there is a lot of hope to be had. But the insurance problem, wow. You're absolutely right. Insurance companies got out of flooding completely in 1992 when Hurricane Andrew wiped out Florida. So nationwide and all state, all the big companies no longer issue flood insurance at all. And guess what? The wildfire insurance <laughs> companies are now starting to get out of that business yeah. too mm -hmm. because you can't make money. You're going to lose your shirt as the wildfires become bigger and bigger and bigger every year. So if, a, if an insurance company is going to stay alive, and I understand that you know insurance companies are big, evil 
conglomerates, we hate them, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> it doesn't serve anyone if they go out of business. So if they are to stay alive, all they can do is raise their rates, and they're doing that, or drop customers who live in risky areas, and they're doing that, or get out of the business, and they're doing that too. So there really is no shiny horizon for the insurance business. I don't have any idea how that's going to shake out unless it one day becomes you know, a luxury for the super rich. And one of the things we've had a lot of more of is hail. So we've had a lot more hail claims and things that, that have happened here in, in Minnesota in the past years. In fact, several huge hail storms that we never used to have in the past. So that's another area where the insurance companies probably going to get sick and tired of fulfilling all the, the claims that they've got. So that's another big change. Now, of course, in the Midwest here, we have the tornadoes. That's one thing. we And you say preparing for a tornado. I mean, how do you prepare for a tornado other than get in your basement like we always do? Yeah, this is um, this is a wild bit of information. You know, the, the United States has more tornadoes than any country in the world. We have 75% of the world's tornadoes here mm. because of the way the, the landscape and the terrain with the Rocky Mountains right next to the Plains states uh, happens to fall. And the really alarming thing with the changing climate is that Tornado Alley, which is the most frequent tornado zone. It's, you know, Kansas, Texas, Nebraska, that zone in there. That's shifting to the east. It's shifting into Tennessee and Michigan and so on. And the reason that's so scary is because those aren't just wide open plains without a lot of people living there. Those are densely populated areas. They tend to be poorer areas um, with poorly, weakly built housing stock. Some counties don't even have building codes. They don't even exist uh. in, in some places. So it means that the tornadoes that do exist are going to be much more dangerous and much more lethal. Um, it's already happening. You keep reading about these Tennessee tornadoes that kill a lot of people. So in terms of what you can do, um, a big one, the two big ones are your roof and your garage door. So certain roof shapes act like wings, and the uh, heavy wind, it can suck it off. And then other roof shapes, flatter roof shapes, are harder for them, for winds, to, to, to pull off. So if you do have the, the ability to rebuild or build a new house, there are certain designs that work better than others. And then the garage door, what tends to happen in high winds, if the garage door is not reinforced, the garage door blows in, mm. and the wind's basically inflate your house like a balloon and boom, the roof goes flying off and the windows go flying out. So there are some neat tricks in the book on how to reinforce your garage, even if it's a temporary impromptu, you know, like, like you can take a two by four on the inside of your garage door, close the door, put the two by four from floor to ceiling, and then back up your car gently to pin it into place oh my. during the tornado. Mm. And that will stop the garage door from imploding. Well, that's certainly new information that I've learned because I hadn't heard that one before. Yeah. And you can also buy temporary supports. They're aluminum that um, you just snap into place during the storm from the inside of the garage door. um, And then you take it down when the storm has passed. And those are fairly inexpensive, too. And the next, uh, you've got another chapter, which is a big deal here in Minnesota and Wisconsin area is mosquitoes and ticks. Preparing for mosquitoes and ticks. Now, that why is that a part of a climate change book and, and preparing for it? 
Ah, excellent question. Because as the as the planet warms and as the country warms from south to north, the tick areas of the country are moving north with them. In other ah. words, ticks ride aboard deer, mostly deer oh, at yes. night. And so these animals no longer have their populations kept down by harsh winters. So as the winters are milder, the deer, and with them the ticks, are marching north, and they are no longer dying off during the cold months. So we're seeing ticks show up in places they've never been, and mosquitoes as well. Um, I, I interviewed this fantastic tick expert at the University of Rhode Island named Tom Mather. He is, he is Mr. Tick. He's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. He said, <laughs> he said, you know, people have this notion that ticks, sit up in the tree branches waiting for you to walk along <laughs> underneath. They watch for you, then they jump down and they land on you. Turns out ticks can't jump, no. they can't fly, and they don't even have eyes. Oh. So they, they can't see you. So instead what they do is they sit at the ground level with their little forelegs waving in the air until somebody walks by and then they grab on. Um, and there's a lot of really reassuring stuff about ticks. First of all, most of them won't give you Lyme disease. Just even getting bitten will not necessarily give you Lyme disease. Secondly, the tick has to stay on you embedded for 24 to 48 hours before you can get Lyme disease from the tick bite. So if you get that thing off the same night as you took your walk, you are fine. Um, the third reassuring thing is that it's really easy to avoid getting a tick bite and a Lyme, Lyme disease, all you do is put on DEET bug spray. That's it. It's a very safe chemical. It's not toxic. It just smells bad to them. So they hate DEET. So if you spray that on your ankles and your feet and your open areas of skin, they will not jump on you. And if you want to be extra safe, when you come home from the hike, take off your clothes, throw them in the dryer, because heat and dryness kill ticks. So that'll take care of what's ever on your clothes. And while you're standing there naked, look over your hairy parts and make sure there's nothing on you, and you won't get a tick infection. Now, now with mosquitoes, I know the, the, the issue with mosquitoes are West Nile virus and other things like that that's a concern. So uh, we get more standing water, things like that. That's where we're getting all the mosquitoes. And I assume, are they moving as well as part of this climate change? They are indeed. They are uh, They're seeing really scary um, there, there's a, the, the breed we worry about is called Aedes aegypti this is the kind that carries malaria mm. and the really lethal diseases and it used to be something we we think of as a far away breed you know the the, the southern hemisphere the, the equatorial regions but they have shown up for the first time in fresno and san francisco so they are also flying north into new regions of the country and you identified one of the two things to do there, which is get rid of standing water. You know, bird baths and puddles and any any still not moving water on your property, uh, that's where they breed. Fortunately, mosquitoes do not go very far. In their entire lives, mosquitoes do not fly farther than 100 yards from the spot where they were, were born. So if you can eliminate the standing water around your property, you probably won't get mosquito problems. And then when you do go out, again, eat bug repellent, and they will leave you alone. Now, in the book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, you actually have a chapter, Preparing for Social Breakdown. What is that about? 
<laughs> yeah, I had a long conversation with my editor about that one, too. Okay. During, during Hurricane Katrina, everything broke down. Oh. Law enforcement, traffic, electricity, sewage. I mean, it turned into a free-for-all. I mean, security cameras caught just as many police pillaging and raiding shops and breaking windows as citizens. They just didn't show up from, for work. And, you know, there were no traffic lights, and everybody was getting flat tires from the packs that had blown off the roofing materials in Hurricane Katrina, and it was, it was the Wild West. So there was a lot of conversation about when the storms get really bad, when the wild, wildfires get really bad, when cell phone service goes out and electricity goes out, how do we protect ourselves? Are we supposed to get a gun? What are we supposed to do? And so there is a chapter in how to protect yourself when there is actual social breakdown. And, you know, people take to the streets. You can be trampled. You know, things can get crazy. So actually, interestingly, um, a gun expert I, I talked to said, actually, the smartest thing if you're worried about, for example, home invasion is not a gun, which is, as we know, has all kinds of secondary effects if you're not trained and keep it locked away but get what's called a tactical flashlight these are flashlights the police use and the military use they're so bright that they will blind you if and disorient you if it shines into your eyes so if you're really worried about you know things breaking down and people raiding your house shine one of these into their eyes and say get the hell away from here and also like at home depot for 10 bucks you can get solar house lighting to put around the periphery of your house, your home. And, you know, people don't want to raid your house. They just want to raid somebody's house. And chances are they're not going to go for the well-lit one. Oh, I know what. Now i got something new to add to my Christmas list. Tactical flashlight. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All right, you're getting me depressed a little bit here, David, all the things that we got to think about. So you do have a chapter on hope, where to find hope. Let's end the the interview here about that. Where can we find hope so we feel there's something out there that we can do? (laughs) There is so much hope to be found. I mean, I don't care what your politics are. We did elect a president who cares greatly about climate change and who, by a hair, passed the greatest climate change-addressing bill, taking the biggest step in the country's history, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars toward clean energy, clean transportation, clean agriculture, incentives for everybody to clean up their act. It's, you know, it's not as big as it should be. It's not as early as it should have been. But it is a gigantic move, and it will have a huge impact on the problem, not just in the United States, but because so many other countries look at us, and they're like, well, if they're not going to do anything, I'm not going to do anything. (laughs) So it signals that we are taking action. Another huge source of hope is it used to be that the biggest polluters are corporations. Still is true. And it has become unfashionable, though, to be a polluter. It's just that there are three forces all acting on companies, right? There's, there's consumers who care and are starting to put public pressure on them. There are investors who no longer think it's a good investment to invest in a dirty company. And there are the company's own employees who more than ever are having uprisings and insisting that their leadership clean up their act. You know, five years ago, Amazon 
didn't have any climate program. They were doing nothing. And the, the, the employees almost had a mutiny. And now they're spending $10 billion on climate research. They're replacing all their vans with electric ones. They have built 15 solar and wind farms. I mean, they're making enormous strides. And same thing with Apple and Google and Microsoft and all these giant companies, the airlines even, and agriculture companies. They're changing their tune because it, it looks good, it's a good investment, and it protects their own bottom line in the future as, you know, they're, they're, what, what all these companies are terrified of is a carbon tax. If someday the government says polluters pay us more, everyone's terrified of that becoming a law. So they're trying to clean up their act in advance. And that's great news. Well, thank you for leaving us on a note with some hope. We're talking with David Pogue, <laughs> who is the author of How to Prepare for Climate Change. And your book is available anywhere, anywhere fine books are sold. <laughs> okay. Do you have a website that people could look and find more info about you? I do. It's it's my name, davidpogue.com. That's P as in Peter, O-G-U-E, like, like Vogue, but with a P. Thank you. I appreciate it, too. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.